let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, we just thank you for once again bringing us uh, here together to to worship you as a as a body of believers, and uh, Lord, to look into your Word and just consider um, how it is that you have given us your Word and how we should view it. And uh, God, I just pray that you'd be with us, that you would encourage us, uh, strengthen our faith in your Word, uh, increase our love for your Word, uh, and, and Lord, just cause us to grow. Uh, through this examination, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> All right. So we're finishing up our series on how we got the Bible. Um, as we've been going through it, just uh, for those who haven't been here and for those who would like a review, we've basically talked about it from two big category uh, views uh, from the historical perspective and then from the theological perspective. So in the historical perspective, we talked about how did the Bible come from the, the time that it was written down to us uh, through the, the copying that was done, just hand copying before the, before the printing press existed, um, the corruption that happened just as it happens in anything that's hand copied, uh, and the restoration process that, uh, that Christians have undertaken to, uh, to do our best to put, put together what it is that they actually originally wrote, uh, the consideration of the canon, which books belong in the Bible, um, and historically how that took place and how we should look at that, um, and the translations of the Bible, historically how the Bible has been translated. And, uh, translation philosophies and things like that. So basically those are the those are the ingredients that, that put together how it is that we uh, have the Word of God uh, with us today. Um, and then from a theological perspective, we considered just the question of, well, how is it that um, it, it traveled from the mind of God to actually being written down uh, for us to read? And so we talked about the doctrine of inspiration um, and as a necessary corollary, we've begun talking about the doctrine of inerrancy. So we're going to continue that this morning um, and uh, finish up our study with, uh, with the, the rest of our discussion on the, the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, and as, uh, as we did last week, I'm going to be uh, using heavily from the Chicago Statement uh, on Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, we're going to look at a little bit more of that uh, this morning. Again, we're not doing an exhaustive look at that, but um, you can, you're certainly welcome to, to bring it up on your phones as we talk about it this morning, and it's definitely worth the read. Um, uh, just on your own time, it's not a very long document. It's, uh, um, it's, a, it's a relatively short read and just a, a, a very thorough modern treatment of the doctrine of inerrancy. So, let's see, last week um, we were, we looked at Article 13. Um, I want to skip up to um, Article uh, 18. So if you're, if you're reading along, we're going to look at Article 18 uh, this morning. Um, and so that one says, we affirm that the text of Scripture is to be interpreted by grammatico-historical exegesis, taking account of its literary forms and devices, and that scripture is to interpret scripture. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text uh, or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to relativizing, dehistoricizing, 
or discounting its teachings or rejecting its claims of authorship. Now, just as uh, as we've studied uh, scripture, as each of you have studied it uh, in your own time, just looking at that affirmation, we affirm that the text of scripture is to be interpreted by grammatico-historical exegesis, taking account of its literary forms and devices, and that scripture is to interpret scripture. If we were to try to like expand that out and, and use everyday language, what 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 do you think that's getting at? Um, and maybe what is some errors that it's attempting to address? Any thoughts? We're well, running. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say it's really taken into account like the the grammar. Mm-hmm. You know, so looking at literary devices, genre, mm-hmm. things like that. Otherwise, you can misinterpret mm-hmm. scripture if you don't take those things into account. Or mm-hmm. likewise, uh, the historical events and the context in which it was written and mm-hmm. everything. So if you if you if you, you you can make scripture say anything you want if you don't take those things into account, right. basically. Right. Yeah. So interpretation is just a very critical thing, right? Yeah. Because yeah, like you said, in a sense, you can make scripture say anything you want if you don't take proper interpretation into account. Now, some people mistakenly think that that's something that's unique about Scripture. It's like, oh, well, you can make Scripture say anything you want. Yeah. But if you listen to what somebody else says, you know, then, you know, then they, you know, it's clear what they mean, and there's only one way to, you know, to interpret it. The reality is it's like you can take any statement from any person, any kind of communication, any way you want if you don't properly interpret it. So... In a sense, scripture isn't unique in that way. It has to be interpreted properly, just like everything else. Um, and if you interpret it properly, there is a meaning. Um, and we talked about that some, uh, I think, a year ago when we talked about how to study the Bible. But interpretation is is absolutely vital. Um, and when we're talking about the doctrine of inerrancy, um, that's it's just absolutely critical because you could just read the Bible and come up with some wacky interpretation. Um, and the doctrine of inerrancy just does not apply to that. You can't say, "Oh, it's like, oh, my misinterpretation comes from Bible, from, come from comes from the Bible, therefore it's without error." And that's just not the case. Uh, when we talk about the doctrine of inerrancy, you have to be interpreting the Bible properly before the doctrine of inerrancy has any real meaning. What about the denial here? The denial uh, we deny that the the legitimacy of any treatment of the text. Or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to relativizing, dehistoricizing, or, discont- uh, or discounting its teaching, or rejecting its claims of authorship. Okay. What types of uh, types of attacks on the authority of the Bible are being addressed here? Anybody familiar with some of the? Uh, some of the higher criticism that gets done on on the Bible. There's a let's see, somebody somebody wants to jump in, they can, but if not, um, there's there's a, a a large number of people who um, find it uh, to be a a path to take where where they will attempt to look at the Bible and and 
rejecting the idea that it's the word of God, and we'll say, well, okay, here's you know some human author he wrote this. Um, let's see if we can figure out you know how it is that he came about writing this, um, and they will attempt to um, you know draw out all these. They'll, they'll they'll point to you know individual little things in the text, and they'll say, oh well, this leads me to think that he was using you know this source over here. Maybe he was combining sources or. Um, something like that. I mean, it's, it's very common for people to look at the four Gospels and say, oh, well, you know, what was going on is that, you know, Mark, he's got the shortest Gospel, so he wrote his first, and then Luke and Matthew, they, they basically just copied Mark, but they decided that they didn't like some of the things that Mark said, so they've decided to change them. But there's some things that are, like, the same between Matthew and Luke that aren't in Mark, so they must have had you know, a, a document in common between them uh, that, you know, that they were both drawing from other than Mark. And so, you know, they they have this hypothesis, there's this document Q. And so it's like, okay, so they were both working with, with, uh, with Mark and Q, but they were making completely different decisions about, you know, what they wanted to write about Jesus. But they were all just, you know, basically just writing whatever they wanted to um, and changing things as they, as they saw fit. Um, and that's a you know that's a that's a perspective that people take, um, but uh, of course that means that you have you know different contradictory uh, versions of the life of Jesus in the Bible, um, and that's just not at all consistent with the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, and hopefully uh, we've given enough foundation that you know you have reason to believe in the doctrine of inspiration and the doctrine of inerrancy, um, and so. We should look at theories like this and say, yeah, that's probably not the way you should approach the Word of God. Um, the, that's not the way that the, that the authors of the, of the text of Scripture viewed it. Um, that's not the way that when you, when you look at, when you have a, an author of Scripture who's looking at other Scripture that's already been completed, that's not the view they have of it. Um, when you look at the early Christians, that's not the view they have of Scripture. I mean, really, that's not the view that anybody, that you know, any Christian has had of Scripture, um, and it's it's only the you know the modern uh, scholars who have rejected the the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, who think that these theories really have merit. Um, does that make sense? Um, that's really what this is what this is talking about: is that a commitment to the doctrine of inerrancy is going to Basically, it's going to filter out some of the approaches to Scripture that are very popular today. Yeah, well, and I was going to say to the previous, the end of the previous one, where Scripture interprets Scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, Scripture clearly says that it's it's inspired of God and mm -hmm. and things. So it it even addresses some of these theories. It would yeah. it would omit some of these theories mm -hmm. just absolutely because these passages are very clear. It's not even passages that are under scrutiny. It doesn't mean this or that. It's mm -hmm. it's very clear. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like for example, you know, we have uh, we have uh, Paul. I, I know I don't remember the exact quotation, but we have Paul at one point citing uh, the book of Luke uh, to provide us with something that Jesus said. Um, and so Paul clear and you know and he's you know is referring to it as scripture. Yeah. So Paul was clearly viewing the Gospel of Luke as scripture. Which is just completely contrary to any notion that Luke just sat down with Mark and Q and it's like, okay, these are my two sources, but then I'm just going to write what I want. You know, um, it just it doesn't work that way. Um, 
It's it's actually the word of God. Um, and as we look at you know the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, um, you know, there's all sorts of things we can talk about in terms of like why are they different? In what ways are they different? Um, but if we have an if we have an approach to that that says, well, it's not the word of God, then I mean we just completely abandon. Um, you know all all Christian views of what Scripture actually is. So hopefully that's hopefully that's clear. So um, definitely that's something that we should keep in mind as we're considering inerrancy, as we're considering how we approach the Bible. Uh, we need to interpret it properly, and there's certain views that it just doesn't make sense to to take as we approach Scripture and how to, how to deal with it. I want to jump clear back um, in the uh, in the Chicago statement, back to Article Five. Um, I think this is uh, kind of ties in to some degree. I mean, they the order they did it in is fine, uh, but just for our teaching purposes, uh, going back to Article Five here makes sense. So, Article Five says we affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive. And we deny that later revelation, may, uh, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever, contra- uh, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. So that last little statement there, I mean, it's, it's definitely um, an important statement, but it's, it's really kind of more... Um, in terms of like sola scriptura discussions, and we're we're a little more focused on inerrancy. But when we consider um, the nature of scripture, um, it is progressive revelation, um, and it's very easy for some people to look at the New Testament and say, "Oh well, I see a very loving, a very forgiving God, a God of mercy," and then I look at the Old Testament and I see this God of wrath who's you know, bringing his judgment on all these people, and it's just—it just must be, you know, must be two different, two different gods. I was, I was actually uh, uh, going over some material, and um, I don't remember exactly where this came from, but uh, there's apparently this report of like—I uh, think, think it was—it happened in China, maybe, where um, you know some missionaries had been working, and so like some mother is. Uh, Teaching, teaching her child, you know, about the Bible and uh, going over one of these really hard passages in the Old Testament. But it's it had been, you know, amongst some missionaries who had really downplayed the doctrine of inerrancy. So this is what the illustration amounts to: is so these people, you know, basically, you know, not not very strong on the doctrine of inerrancy, and you know, and the mother's trying to explain this, um, and you know, and basically says, oh well, yeah, you know. The, this is all changed in the New Testament. You know, we, we don't we don't behave this way in the, in the New Testament, where you know uh, sinners are being judged by the wrath of God. And the and the apparently the little child said, "Oh, I understand. This is this is before God became a Christian." <laughs> so, I mean, I don't I'm not 100 percent certain that that's a true story, but it at least illustrates the point. You know that like if we if we approach the Bible this way. Um, where you know things have just changed, where um, uh, basically the New Testament corrects the Old Testament, um, then uh, you know we, we really do run into some strange problems. 
Um, but it's, it's important to realize that the Old Testament and the New Testament go together. I mean, it's very easy to point out the wrath of God in the New Testament, and it's very easy to point out the love and mercy of God in the Old Testament. Um, it's just, you know, people can pick those things out and um, try to make it uh, look worse than it actually is. Um, but, I mean, you know, there, there isn't enough of a, you know, the amount of material in each category is enough to, you know, cause people to, to think they're seeing this problem. But we need to understand that um, we need to take all of Scripture. And if you take all of Scripture, you see that there's a complete consistency between the Old and New Testament. And we need to deliberately, you know, attempt to look for that. Um, I mean, it, it really is, I mean, it just kind of, when you study it in depth, it really does just jump out at you how um, the New Testament just really, it's like so many things in the Old Testament are fulfilled by what the New Testament says. And there's so many things that are just unlocked in the Old Testament in terms of, you know, prophecy and uh, various events that happen. And you're like, oh, that just, it makes so much sense now that we see the New Testament, now that we see the life of Christ, now that we see how these things are fulfilled. Um, and it really makes it where it's like, well, how could, you know, if, if, if all this isn't true, if Christianity isn't true, how in the world could the Old Testament have been written in such a way that it so, you know, perfectly finds its fulfillment in the things that happen in the life of Jesus. Um, it's it's really the only way to take it as being, um, uh, you know, if you look at all the evidence, is that there's complete consistency between the Old and New Testament. Um, and so we, we definitely want to look at that way and never view it that... Um, that uh, the old that the New Testament is is correcting or contradicting what we find in the in the Old Testament. Any any thoughts or questions comments about that? Yeah. I, I think it is worth noting, Chris, especially in our day and culture, that the Bible has a meaning. I mean, a text means something, mm -hmm. and it's not just what I think it means or what you think it means. And I, I think even as Christians, we can sometimes come with that kind of perspective. Sure. And so even when we disagree over doctrines, we ought not to just say, well, that's what this person believes and I believe this. Mm -hmm. We ought to be seeking to understand and even working together, even come from different perspectives, to really try to wrestle with the text. Mm -hmm. right. you know, so. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, just like any communication, um, I mean, not any communication, but, but just like normal communication, it's like there's a meaning that the author intends. Um, and, you know, we have certain philosophies in our day which tries to, you know, pull that away and say, well, it's, it's you know, it's the interpreter, it's the receiver of the message that really gives the message meaning. And that's just not the case. The author has an intent. Um, and, yes, and like you said, you know, we should be working together um, if, you know, if person A has one interpretation and person B has another interpretation, then ideally, you know, those people ought to get together and discuss it and try to come up with the same interpretation uh, because there can only be one correct interpretation. Um, it's, it's just like if you're working on a math problem. You know, if, if one person says 2 plus 2 equals 4 and one person says 2 plus 2 equals 5, then, you know, they really ought to, you know, get some beads or something and get together and, you know, try to, try to come to a conclusion because there re it really is only one right answer to that question. So... But yeah, that's a good point. So. All right, and then we're going to jump clear back up to Article 14 um, in the Chicago Statement. 
Um, this says, we affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture, and we deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved vitiate the truth, uh, sorry, vitiate the truth claims of the Bible. So this is, I mean, kind of just a summary statement of the doctrine of inerrancy, right? Uh, we affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. So um, Scripture is, it's, it's internally consistent. It's, it's truthful. Um, it's got one message uh, from beginning to end. Uh, so you, basically, there are not contradictions in the Bible, as much as you might hear otherwise. But then it's got that denial. It says, we deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved vitiate the truth claims of the Bible. What does that mean? What are they, what are they getting at there? <clears throat> what does that term mean? What's that? The vitiate or whatever it is, what does that mean? I, um, I kind of can tell it, it means to reduce the value or quality, to impair or to spoil. There we go. Thank you. Let's see, I didn't have a definition off the top of my head. But. Any thoughts? And to a certain extent, there are things that appear to contradict. I'm sorry? Sorry. <clears throat> to a certain extent, there are things in the Bible that appear to contradict each other mm-hmm. that don't. And uh, <clears throat> I can't remember where it is, but... Like one of the things is like, well, how many people died with that uh, uh, disease that God sent among the Israelites? One count says one number, another count mm-hmm. says another number. Mm-hmm. But if you look, it's like it talks about how many people died in one day mm-hmm. versus how many people died in the total thing. And there are things like that that can be resolved. Right. Um, but uh, but we don't. We're not never going to understand everything that the scriptures reveal. Mm-hmm. And I think to a certain extent this is talking about the fact that God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. We're finite. We can't understand everything. There's always going to be some mystery. Mm-hmm. Even, with, even with some things that we can explain very well, mm-hmm. we can't explain them fully. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and there, I mean, there are there are many alleged contradictions in the Bible. Many things that people will point to and say, "Well, that's a that's a problem in the Bible." Um, and many, many, many of those have been answered very well. Um, and sure, there's a there's a handful of them that it's like we still don't really have a great answer for. Uh, does that mean we should just throw up our hands and say, "Oh, uh, I guess it's not the inspired word of God because we don't we don't know the answer to this particular one." Um, the the answer of the the Chicago statement is, is no. Um, we should not just look at those individual things and say, well, that just completely destroys the doctrine of inerrancy because we don't know how to deal with this one particular issue. Um, the fact is, sometimes we've we've run into issues that we didn't know how to deal with, um, and that after a certain amount of time, we did figure out how to deal with them. Um, and so there's no reason to think that's not going to be the case with with every one of them. I want to actually spend a little bit of time on that. That's the that's the last thing we're going to look at from the Chicago statement. But I I do want to like kind of delve into that question of like how do we deal with alleged errors in the Bible? Um, I mean we've talked a lot about you know 
the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of inerrancy, you know, this, these are the things that we believe as Christians. Uh, these are the things that are taught in the Bible about the nature of Scripture. Um, so, I mean, if Christianity is true, these things are true. But we, we've got, you know, this big long list of things that people have claimed these are these are problems in the Bible, these are contradictions, these are these are errors. You know, how should we deal with that? And from my perspective, there are two extremes that we that we should avoid. Um, one thing is uh, to say that all Bible difficulties must be answered or I can't trust the Bible. I mean, that's the extreme skeptic position. It basically says, look, I've, I've got to have everything answered. Otherwise, I'm just going to reject it all. It's ridiculous. Um, the other is to ignore Bible difficulties and just say, well, I just trust the Bible. And just, um, you know, and that can sound very good. That can sound very pious. But then just, just completely ignore all of the, the difficulties that are in the Bible. Um, I think that's also an error. Um, I think uh, just as you look at the, the different things that people believe all over the world about all sorts of things, um, it's very dangerous if you just latch onto something and say, I'm just going to believe this in spite of all evidence. Um, sometimes people present biblical faith as if that's what that is, um, but I don't, I don't think that's biblically what faith is. Uh, faith biblically speaking, has a, an examination of evidence involved in it. Um, so we don't want to go to that extreme. Um, one thing, as I was considering this, um, I mean, the Bible, in a sense, addresses this issue. There's a, there's a passage from Isaiah, uh, chapter 44, that I want to talk about a little bit. It's probably something that you guys are familiar with. It's one of those very entertaining passages to read. Um, but it addresses people who have a belief that really is not a reasonable belief. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. Isaiah chapter 44, uh, beginning in verse 12. It says, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. Uh, he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and uh, marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, uh, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also bricked bed, bricked, sorry, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, 
And shall I make the rest of it uh, an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So what do we see going on here in this passage? That's somebody fashioning an idol, right, out of, out of wood. What's the, what's the condemnation that we, that we see of this person? Is it simply that, well, they're worshiping a false god and they shouldn't be? It's the combination of you use the same tree to form this god you're worshiping as what you're using for these mundane things, and it's you're not seeing the whole picture of you could have just as easily thrown that wood in the fire, mm-hmm. put your food on it, cooked your... It's something of your own design, your own creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like you you plant this tree, you, you know, you you cause it to, you know, I mean, you don't cause it to grow, but I mean, it's like you're, you know, you're you're all involved in this whole creation process of this thing, um, and part of it you use just to, you know, light a fire, um, and it's just it's just the complete unreasonableness of it. It's like how are you going to bow down to this, pray to it, and say, deliver me? How is it going to deliver you? It's a it's a piece of wood. Um, so were you getting ready to say something else? Okay, no. Um, that just the idea that it's this is a very unreasonable thing. Now there's a delusion on these people, as as Isaiah tells us. You know these people are deluded. They can't they can't even realize there's a lie in my hand. There's there's this false thing in my hand that isn't true. Um, but there's a there is. Along with the condemnation of idolatry, there is a condemnation with just not thinking clearly, right? Uh, that, like, reason should tell these people, this is not a god. I should not worship this. Um, and if you just if you just take the extreme position of just like, well, I'm just going to choose to believe this and forget about all evidence, um, then, you know, um, you're, you're going to wind up uh, I mean, not necessarily, but, you know, odds are you're going to wind up believing something that isn't true. You look at the many false religions that exist in our day, uh, very frequently the people approach it that way. They just say, well, I'm, I'm going to ignore the evidence and I'm going to believe that, you know, that Allah is God and, and uh, Muhammad is his prophet. Or I'm going to believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet, prophet of God uh, or, you know, whatever the religion is. Um, the, the fact is, is that we, we need to be able to look at the world and say, is the world consistent with what we believe? Now, interestingly, if you look at the, the worldview that is presented in the Bible, it matches really well with the world we see. Um, and uh, so many of the systems of the world, um, when they attempt to look at the world, there's just fundamental problems with the way that they look at the world. Um, that it just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you take the complete materialistic, atheistic position, uh, they they basically have no room even for the laws of logic, even though they claim to be very logical people. Um, only the, the Christian worldview is going to present you an accurate view of reality because it's what's true. Um, but because 
it is true and it represents reality, then it can be examined. You can look at evidence and you can see, yes, this is true. So definitely want um, Christians to avoid going to the extreme of just like, I'm just going to just blindly accept without any consideration of evidence. Just going to ignore any claim that there's any errors in the Bible and just plow on and say, I'm just going to believe it all uh, without question. But then there's the other extreme. There's the other extreme of just saying, oh, well, I just have to have an answer, or I'm just not going to accept it. And uh, this is something that Christians have wrestled with for centuries. And um, Augustine, clear back in the 4th century, um, made an observation that I think is just very insightful on this issue, and I think it remains the appropriate way to look at it. Um, Augustine said, I confess... uh, uh, I confess to your charity that I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. And if in these writings I am perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said, or I myself have failed to understand. So he's got three categories that he applies here. If he comes across something in the Bible that he's just like, yeah, this this looks like an error in the Bible. Because he's already made his commitment. The biblical authors don't make errors. He's... He's affirmed the doctrine of inerrancy, as as he should. And he says, basically, well, it was either copied wrong, or it was translated wrong, or it's been interpreted wrong, you know, and by, by Augustine himself. It's like, either either I'm misinterpreting it, or whoever gave me my, my Latin translation, they made a mistake, or somebody made a, a copyist error. Um, and so he chalks it up to those things, where he says... Look, I'm going to assume that it's correct and that there's some other thing that's causing the problem. Um, now, I don't think that Augustine was taking it to the extreme where he's just like, well, I'm just going to ignore the errors and just accept everything. Um, but I think Augustine had come to the conclusion Christianity is correct. It matches reality. And yeah, when I come across these minor little things that appear to be a problem then my approach is going to be, well, I'm not just going to say, oh, well, I'll just pitch the Bible and, you know, go, you know, follow some other religion. I'm going to assume it's probably either copied wrong, translated wrong, or I've interpreted it wrong. Ben? Well, and I think with that, too, I think first we should go to, it's probably been interpreted wrong. I'm sorry? We should probably go to first, it's probably been interpreted wrong by myself. Mm -hmm. And not just say, oh, that's not part of the Bible. And, like, that's... Going to be a copy of stereo right there, and we're going to ditch that. Um, that could be a possibility, but knowing how often I misinterpret the Bible, it's probably that. Right. Yeah. Well, what, one thing you do have to understand: copy of were more frequent. I mean, yeah. it, he had to live with whatever That's copies he had, and so yeah, they were more likely problems in his day than they are now, where we have come to a point where it's hard not to find an accurate copy of. The scriptures if you want one exactly yeah it's 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 definitely a different situation um in our day because he was living in a day where it's like they just didn't have printing presses all of his copies were handwritten copies 
and they were well aware of the fact that people made mistakes when they made handwritten copies, and he couldn't just go on the internet and compare his copy with somebody else's copy. Um, you know, literally, it's like he's got what he's got. Otherwise, he's going to have to take a, a journey to try to go look at somebody else's copy. So it's a little, a little more likely in his day that it's like I may just have a copyist error, and you know, and he would probably attempt to figure out do I have a copyist error by at least writing his friends and saying, hey, can you check? What does your what does your copy say here? Um, but uh, but yeah. So in our day, like we've we you know we have so much manuscript information and have just analyzed it so thoroughly that it's rarely going to be a copyist error unless we have a footnote saying some manuscripts say this. You know, then we're then we're tipped off that that might be the case. But uh, but yeah. Um, and you know, and obviously, like it's been translated into English so many times. People have worked on it so hard. We've got different translations we can compare. Um, so, and we've got lots of commentaries we can look at. You know, that kind of you know point us in directions of like how should this be translated. Um, so we can you know we can we can weed those things out pretty well too, uh, where that would wasn't necessarily the case for for uh, Augustine. Um, but yeah, it is, I mean, it is frequently just like, yeah, I'm just interpreting it wrong. Um, I just don't have the, the information. Um, I, need to, I need to study this more. So, Chris, is, yeah. there, is there also a sense of, <laughs> that's a really arrogant view to think that we can decipher all these apparent contradictions. Mm-hmm. I mean, if God is so great as he is, mm-hmm. then does it not stand to reason that there may be things that he has revealed to us that you know are beyond our ability to grasp sure. and stuff. I mean, sure. who wants to worship a god that we can understand completely? Sure. You know, because then we're as great as that god. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, yeah I mean, I know. I was just gonna say. So I would think that would sort of play into the whole idea of our struggle mm-hmm. to in, interpret too as well. Is just right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like particularly with things like the doctrine of the Trinity, that really comes into play because somebody could look at uh, what Scripture says and they say, well, okay. The Bible says that there's only one God, and it says that the Father's God, that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit's God, and it makes distinctions between those, you know, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the Bible just must be contradictory. Um, whereas, you know, we as, as Christians, we look at it and say, no, that's just a, a revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, how can it be that uh, we can have one God that exists in three persons that are distinct you know distinguishable from each other um but it's still only one god you know how can that be it's like well we just accept it you know so that's certainly one of those things where it's like yeah god is just beyond us so much that we just have to say yeah i'm just going to accept what scripture says here and not try to say well i've got everything figured out and i'm gonna impose that on what you know what scripture says so that is um that is certainly the case um there are a number of other types of, of uh, you know, supposed contradictions. Um, just to just to kind of run through a little catalog here. Um, quite frequently, um, supposed problems in the Bible uh, amount to parallel accounts that where there's some kind of variation between them, where the same thing is recorded in more than one place in Scripture. It's like, well, I can see differences between these things. Um, another thing that pops up sometimes is. Uh, that there are supposed contradictions in history, uh, basically problems between what Scripture says and what we know from history. Um, 
so it's like, well, this is this is what we know from history, but then the Bible says this, so the Bible is obviously wrong because it's contradicting history. This is the basically the accusation that's made. Um, another one that uh, that comes up quite frequently is is science. It's like we've in our in our day we've done a, a very good job of doing lots of scientific inve- investigation and figuring out to a large degree how the world works. Um, and so people will look at it and say, well, we know this from science, this is fact. And we look at the Bible and we see that it doesn't, doesn't agree with that. And therefore, well, there's a problem in the Bible. There's a, there's a problem in the Bible that disagrees with science. Um, and then it might just be something that's like, well, it's a logical contradiction. Um, and there you might point to something like the doctrine of the Trinity, where it's like, well, you know, the way we're looking at it, this doesn't seem to be possible. Um, and so usually when we're talking about you know problems, Bible difficulties, um, it's going to kind of fall into one of those categories. Um, just to briefly go over just some examples. Um, when we talk about history, for example, um, one of the things that I, I found interesting is uh, just as people have studied history, um, and have tried to compare it with the Bible, there was a time when uh, people would say, well, one of, the, one of the big problems in the Bible is that it talks about these people called the Hittites. And they had this big empire and you know, did all these things. And it's just like, there's just no historical evidence that there was ever any people known as the Hittites. So the Bible has just invented this completely. Um, but then later they discovered that the Hittites were real people. They uh, discovered just a whole bunch of tablets of their writing, uh, and you know, and you know, had to learn the Hittite language and translate it all, and um, and just learned a whole bunch about the Hittites that the Bible had talked about. But people said, well, it's just it just contradicts history. And if people are interested in history, and I know there are some people in this in this room here who have an interest in history. Um, it's you know, it's amazing, especially when you go back to ancient history, just like how patchwork our information is, and how how much we have to like. It's like okay, well we've got this here that was written, and we got that there that was written, and you know, and there's contradictions between them. We're trying to put it together, and there's things we're just missing. Um, I was talking to Jonathan last week about uh, that uh, that uh, Livy is one of the one of the major historians of the Roman Empire, and he wrote this multi-volume work on the history of Rome, and we're missing several volumes of it. We just don't, we don't have a single copy of, of you know, a big chunk of his history of Rome. Um, you know, so it's just like, we're just missing so much. Um, and there's also the fact, and people oftentimes forget this, uh, we talked about this with like Bart Ehrman, you know, it's like, even these ancient writings, most of the time we don't have like really ancient copies of these ancient writings. We have copies from hundreds or thousands of years later. Um, and so it's like, well, how do we know we didn't have a bunch of copyist errors as people were copying these histories? Um, so it's really very, um, it's very difficult to like look at our current understanding of historically what happened and look at the Bible and say, oh, well, we're just completely confident in our secular histories, and therefore we're going to use that to say that the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. Uh, I mean, the, the fact is that in both of these cases, we're, we're looking at these ancient documents 
and to some degree we're looking at archaeology as well. Um, we're looking at these things, and you know, and they're they're all going to be like to some degree questionable because we don't have photocopies of any of it. Um, and if we just assume the secular histories are just you know absolutely perfect, and then use that to reject the Bible, it's just we're just we're using a false standard. And when you look at the evidence we have, the Bible is far more supported than you know than these ancient writings. And even if you try to say, well, you know, it's like, well, the Bible records miracles. You know, how could we really believe it when it records miracles? It's like, well, if you look at these secular histories, they record miracles too. So uh, they have all sorts of things that you know that you know Zeus or or Helena or you know the the various you know uh, gods are are jumping in and doing and. Um, so it's it's very difficult to point to anything in our knowledge of history and say this absolutely contradicts the Bible. But so many times, as the more we learn about history, uh, the more that apparent problems in history just disappear uh, with Scripture, just because we learn more and realize, oh yeah, the Bible was actually right after all. Um, parallel accounts. Um, I guess just looking at the time, I won't I won't. Uh, go through it, but just uh, just mention one of the famous ones is the death of Judas. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, uh, but there's the, uh, <clears throat> there's the account in Matthew, and there's the account in Acts. Um, and in Acts, it talks about Judas falling headlong into a field, and, uh, and he bursts open in the middle, and Matthew tells us that Judas hung himself. Um, people have pointed to this and said, "Oh, well, this is—you have two contradictory, um, you know, views of, of how it was that Judas died." Um, but you know, people have pointed out it's like it's very reasonable to just put these things together and say Judas hung himself, and when he either was cut down or fell down from the, you know, the the tree that he hung himself from, that you know he spilled open, um, and so it's—I mean, it's. You can work through the whole thing, and you can see there's no contradictions. And most of the time, when you see these, where people will point to parallel accounts and say that there's contradictions, you can just look at them closely, and you can harmonize them without any great difficulty. Um, the reality is, some difficulties don't currently have a good answer. You will occasionally run into those. Um, uh, and the, the, the fact is that we shouldn't allow those to destroy our trust in the Word of God. We should, anytime we come across a Bible with difficulty, we, we should take it seriously. We should attempt to figure it out, try to figure out what's the actual right answer. Uh, but if we find one that we just don't know the answer to, we can't find the answer to, um, that doesn't mean that the Bible is not the Word of God. Um, I'll just point to some, some resources real quickly. Uh, there's the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer, and there's When Critics Ask by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe. Both of those are books that are just dedicated to this topic, and they're just basically like you just look up the passage in that book, and it'll give you like here's what the problem is, here's some possible solutions. Um, and then if you just look at Bible commentaries as well, um, good Bible good Bible commentaries will address these things and say. Oh, well, this looks like it might be a contradiction with this over here, and here's why it's not. Um, so there's definitely places that you can look. But again, um, we should take Bible uh, difficulties seriously, um, but nothing 
that we have, no Bible difficulty that we have, is really anywhere near on the level that we should even consider um, abandoning Christianity as a result of it. I mean, it's all really minor stuff. Um, and so, I mean, hopefully that's that's helpful. And just as our you know our discussion on inerrancy as a whole, hopefully. Um, it's given you a, a good picture of what we mean and what we don't mean by inerrancy, um, the biblical basis for inerrancy. I mean, it really, is, it is something that flows out of the doctrine of inspiration. Um, if God, who cannot lie, if God, who always speaks truth, has uh, directly put this information into the Bible through the means of human beings who wrote it down, um, then it is going to be completely without error. That's just kind of a, uh, inerrancy is a consequence of inspiration. Um, and hopefully, just look, looking back over the, the whole study that we've done, um, just as you are reading and studying the Bible, hopefully this is helpful, as you talk to people who want to challenge the authority of the Word of God and say, well, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions, uh, the Bible's written by man, so it can't be believed, uh, the Bible's just been copied so many times that we can't trust it. The Bible's been translated so many times you can't trust it. can't have any idea what books belong in the Bible. All these things we've talked about, uh, hopefully just going over this stuff will make you more confident as you talk to unbelievers and they challenge the authority of the Word of God that you'll be able to say, well, I've, I've looked into this a little bit and you know this is what I've found. Because most of the time the people who, have, who, who are challenging the authority of the Word of God they haven't looked into these things. They've heard little sound bites from people like Bart Ehrman. Um, and they just think, oh, well, scholars say this, and all you Christians must just not know what you're talking about. Uh, but if you know, if we do our study, if we know what we're talking about, then um, then we can we can tell people you know, we have good reason to believe in the authority of the Word of God, um, which then uh, gets us back on track of presenting. God's requirements for us, uh, God's uh, statement about the condition of humanity, and God's message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Any final thoughts or comments before we, before we close? Yeah. Just thank you, Chris, for this class. Appreciate you doing this. Just remind people too, you know, as you you go through this class and, and you sort of hear this stuff, and then you encounter somebody and they have one of these questions, you may think. And what was it that Chris said? And, of course, they could come talk with you. But mm -hmm. we'll also have these online, too, yes. so people can go back and refresh their memory yep, as well. Yep. So. You, can, you can go look at these online, and I'm going to try to, to, to put together slides for the, the last few of these after our projector quit working. Um, I don't have those done. But anyway, hopefully there will be slides for every lesson, even the ones where you guys didn't get to see them. So, But, yeah, so that will be a good way to go review. And then, obviously, look at the resources that I pointed you to and... Feel free to come and, and talk to me or Pastor Rick or anybody else who's who's studied this this issue and um, and yeah it's a, it's definitely worth knowing this stuff so thank you for that all right let's uh, let's close in prayer Heavenly Father Lord we we do thank you for your word we thank you that it is uh, that it is pure that it is something that uh, directs us in our lives something that shows us the wickedness of our own heart. And God, that shows us you and shows us your great plan of salvation. God, I just pray that we would truly love your word, that we would trust it, that we would study it diligently, 
and God, that through it you would sanctify your people. We pray in Christ's name.